Hi, this is Pierce Boyne, the Digital Media Editor for the Journal of Neurologic Physical Therapy, JNPT. This podcast episode is part of a series where Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy special interest groups talk with JNPT authors about their research, unique and unexpected findings, and translating those findings to clinical practice. In this episode, the Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group is interviewing Drs. Andrew Peckstein and Andrew Guccione. They will be discussing their upcoming JNPT article titled, Walking Endurance and Oxygen Uptake on Kinetics in Individuals with Parkinson's Disease Following Overground Locomotor Training. Let's listen in to the great discussion. Welcome to 4D, Deep Dive into Degenerative Diseases. Gaining insights through casual and amusing clinical conversations. Welcome to 4D, a podcast brought to you by the AMPT Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group. I'm Katie McGraw, a physical therapist, and I serve on the DDC podcast team. I'm here today with Dr. Andrew Guccione, Professor Emeritus at George Mason University, who will go by Dr. G for the purposes of this podcast, as well as Dr. Andrew Peschstein, who got his PhD at George Mason, who is currently a physical therapy student at the University of Delaware Physical Therapy Program, and also doing research in orthopedics. We're talking about the JMPT paper entitled Walking Endurance and Oxygen Uptake on Kinetics in Individuals with Parkinson's Disease Following Overground Locomotor Training. Welcome to your boat. Tell us a little bit more about yourselves. This is uh, Andrew Guccione, and I've been a physical therapist for 45 years, starting way back when. And uh, my research interests have definitely evolved over time. I think my initial foray into research was actually more as a health services researcher and sort of quasi-epidemiology of disability. And that led me into, and I was working in rheumatology, which is a natural jumping off point for geriatrics. And then um, I think that really defined a large part of my research career. And, but the health services research part probably culminated when I was part of the Department of Veterans Affairs Office of Research and Development as Deputy Director of Health Services Research. And to be quite frank, health services research proved, I think, ultimately unsatisfying to me because it just doesn't get down literally under the skin. And one of the exciting things for the decade, a little bit more than a decade, I spent at um, George Mason University with with great doctoral students like Dr. Peshtein um, was the excitement of really getting into the physiology of it all rather than just counting the frequency and numbers and describing the disability. I think we were trying to get really literally under the skin of it. So I'll leave it at I'll leave it at that as sort of the brief synopsis of my how, how my research line developed. Okay, great. Yeah, thank you. It sounds like um, kind of a jagged line, but really interesting to see kind of how many how many connections you had. 
Well, I heard somebody from the NCMRR recently describe a research career is not a straight line. One should think of it as a jungle gym. And I thought that that was a perfect description of many people's research career. You you jump on to the next available thing as you explore your interests. Mm-hmm. You just go for the next rung. Yeah, exactly. Well, let's hear from Dr. Andrew Pechstein, who gives some perspective on that. So my my uh, my career so far is not nearly as long in story as Dr. Guccione's. Um, I I started off sort of my foray into this. I was a collegiate pitcher at University of Delaware. And like so many other people who get into the physical therapy realm, you know, your interest starts in trying to understand how to optimize uh, performance and recovery from the various bumps and bruises that come with playing sports. And so right after uh, undergrad, um, I, I knew I wanted to do something research related and in the field of physical therapy. And I came across Dr. Guccione's lab. And, and just like he said, the lab's real focus was to get underneath the skin and really understand the, the, the nuts and bolts of, of what optimizes performance, how adaptations are created, which adaptations are related to which performance enhancements. And, and they were doing it initially in people with incomplete spinal cord injury. I got involved in that project. And then that transitioned over to people with Parkinson's disease. And it was really just a, a smooth and natural uh, progression of, of my, my personal interests that just became more academic and focused over time under Dr. Guccione's mentorship. Well, that's great. That's nice to have you both. Um, it was a really interesting paper. Exciting to have you guys on here, both authors, to give perspectives on kind of what led you here. Um, certainly, there's some terminology that I think would be good to go over. So as a Listener, if you guys have been already reading it, um, we'll be dusting off some terminology that we probably don't use very, very clinically, but that's our audience. Our audience is, is really clinicians, um, probably listening on their way to work, trying to take this into the clinic for their next patient with Parkinson's. So that's kind of the heart of the podcast that we like to focus on is kind of bringing the clinical relevance um, down to the work. So why don't we start off by kind of the big picture, just trying to understand what led you guys to do the study um, and some of the results that you found? Well, I think that there were sort of several threads that we tried to tie together in this study. And so let me see if I can describe some of our sort of intellectual um, antecedents. Um, that were very influential in our program and really informed a, a lot of the work we put out. I think the first is um, an insight from Sparrow and Newell from the late 1990s that force us to consider what are the trade-offs between biomechanical efficiencies and metabolic costs and we couple that with a notion that um, movement was an emergent phenomenon uh, from the interactions among the organism or human, the task at hand, and the environment in which the task was performed. And therefore, metabolic cost is part and parcel of the task. It's not an add-on. It's not a. It's not an also ran. It's it's there with inherent in the task, and obviously highly influenced by environmental conditions. So uh, 
given that sort of general approach to understanding movement, particularly as a behavior, and and um, Andrew had mentioned the the, the notion of um, performance, and I think we were very performance oriented, seeing movement as performance. And as clinicians, we are very much aware of diminished endurance um, among people with Parkinson's disease. Um, but we wondered whether there was some basis for a sort of fundamental cardiopulmonary impairment. And as clinicians, we tend to think of that cardiopulmonary impairment um, leading to low endurance or high fatigability in this population. And I, and I think we lean towards, it's not just a generalized deconditioning endurance, it's actually a, a variation on muscle function that is creating this endurance. So we moved away from, I think, what many clinicians think of as critical to endurance, and it certainly is, which is oxygen uptake and oxygen transport, and said, let's go to the periphery and look at oxygen extraction and utilization. And we did a series of studies uh, as well in spinal cord injury that were along that line of how is oxygen being extracted? What's the impact on muscle? Um, but those were very physiological studies. So in this study, we sort of said, well, what about intervention for all of this? Um, people with PD come for motor training, right? Um, but there's this huge barrier if there is this underlying cardiopulmonary impairment. And Andrew and our other colleague, um, Dr. Jared Golly, uh, and I wrote a paper uh, not too long ago. Basically, what was the evidence for thinking that there may be a fundamental cardiovascular pulmonary impairment at the peripheral level, not the central? that was feeding this quote-unquote endurance problem in people with Parkinson's. So that's a real sort of smoker's board of ideas, but that's kind of what we were trying to pull together where it all hits the ground in the clinic. You got a patient who needs to move better and gets tuckered out um, from trying to do so. So, um, I hope that brings the very high level thought right down into, into the clinic. No, it does. And I think for a lot of us in the clinic treating, um, you know, intensity, intensity matters. I mean, that is the push, at least within the Academy of Neurological Physical Therapy, right? Is that we have to get patients moving intensely, intensely defined by heart rate and kind of getting a cardiovascular response. So for a lot of us treating, that's what we're we're incorporating into our training protocols um, and which you guys have done here. And so I don't, I, I, we will get into the details, um, but I was curious how you're measuring, right? This cardiovascular endurance or success within the study. One of your primary outcomes was um, VO2 oxygen uptake on kinetic. And that is a term that I think for a lot of our listeners, including myself, it's not something that we're using in the clinic. Um, so how can we kind of relate that to what you're saying, Dr. G? I'm going to turn that one over to, um, to Dr. Pestein. Um, but I, I will just briefly say, yes, intensity is important. I think our study has some interesting things to say about intensity versus volume. 
of of exercise um, and again biomechanical efficiency versus metabolic economy is an uh, a question that really needs to be uh, taken apart in our field but I'll turn to Dr. Peshteen to talk about about work to rest transitions and and the whole concept of vo2 on kinetics and what we learn from them take it Andrew so I, I think it it's probably best to to explain it first to differentiate it from some of the things that people may be more traditionally familiar with. Everyone, a lot of people know, you know, VO2 max. It's the maximal oxygen uptake tested on a treadmill or a cycle ergometer. And 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 there's you know some very classic papers just simply describing, you know, it's got to get in your lungs, it's got to diffuse into the bloodstream, it's got to pump through the heart very forcefully, it's got to go out to the microcirculation, it's got to be extracted from the microcirculation into the muscle fibers has to go through the metabolic process in the muscle fibers to transform the energy into what you need for muscle contraction and then that's got to be the waste products have to be buffered off taken back to the lungs and breathed out most people are familiar with that whole process and a lot of people understand that uh, that that the there's always the, the the main limitations to that in the absence of someone with a major lung pathology is typically your your cardiac output how much you can you can put out and and how well your muscles are able to extract from the microcirculation and undergo various metabolic processes to um, produce atp readily available for muscle contraction those are sort of the two main categories so you have cardiac output and then what's happening at the peripheral muscle level sort of from a bio biochemical perspective and VO2 max is, is and obviously someone's aerobic um, capabilities, and which is closely related to endurance performance, they're sort of always limited by those two factors. But different measures that we use in the laboratory are kind of more um, geared towards assessing one versus another. So someone's VO2 max, and again, although the peripheral muscles are involved, obviously, heavily in that, it can, it's thought to be limited a lot by maximal cardiac output. Another term that some people might hear is anaerobic threshold, sort of the transition point between aerobic metabolism and anaerobic metabolism. That's sort of obviously influenced by cardiac output, but starts to be a little bit more influenced by the status of the biochemical apparatus in the skeletal muscles. And then when we get to VO2 on kinetics, which is measured in the very moderate intensity domain, differentiating it from uh, peak or, or maximal, car maximal oxygen uptake, these these VO2 on kinetics they're very influenced by the status of the skeletal muscles and much and less influenced by someone's the capacity of someone's heart. I think that kind of pulls in what Dr. G was saying earlier is that the central versus the peripheral yeah, cardiac absolutely. factors. Okay, so um, and I what you're explaining here with um, at this particular time for the VO2 oxygen um, see this is VO2 on kinetics estimates. Mm -hmm. um, is, is looking at kind of the ramp up someone going from kind of a relaxed steady state, starting their exercise. Is that if I'm putting it in simplified terms, absolutely. That's, that's, that's the way that thinking the, of. that's the way that the test is performed, but, but it's, it's, that's, that's the experimental protocol, but it's, it's, I think it's important to understand that it's, it's yes, you're looking at the rest to work transition, but looking at the rest to work transition gives you 
an insight really into the peripheral muscles. It's just, it's the rest work transition is simply an experimental protocol. It, it, yeah, yes, it kind of can give you a functional measure in, in terms of how well someone uh, copes with getting started with exercise. But, but at its core, it really gets at the concept of how well someone's muscle tissue is able to pull oxygen out of the blood and use it. That, that's really what it gets to. If I could jump in here, mm -hmm. um, I think that this is a good example of something that is, is uses a laboratory to give insight into what clinicians see. I don't. What it does provide is a rationale for why intensity matters, um, and it it hopefully reorients. Uh, a bit of the field in terms of not thinking of PD as merely a neurological health condition, that there is this potential, that peripheral muscle and their ability to respond to metabolic demand is as much of a concern of the, of in neurological PT as it is by all our colleagues who, you know, subscribe to the Journal of Cardiopulmonary PT, that, that we have become very system driven. And so there's the nervous system and there's the cardiopulmonary system and the cardiovascular system and this musculoskeletal system. And yet we're movement experts. And here's the, here's, here's the secret guys. It all comes together. And that cardio, that fundamental, what we would argue, begin to argue, we think we have preliminary evidence that there is a fundamental cardiopulmonary impairment of that's exhibited in peripheral response, peripheral muscle response to the initiation of exercise that's of critical importance. And it ain't just all muscles and nerves. D does that help? Katie, put that in perspective for what this might mean to a clinician. Yeah, as, yeah, I, as I evidence think it does. for why you're doing this, and more than oh, here's a test. I need to run out and go buy a Cosmed because <laughs> this is going to help. Yeah. But this is this is your your rationale, okay, for why this is really important and why you as clinicians see that initiation of movement in PD particularly a problem, right? Maybe it's not all a neurological phenomenon. It certainly is a neurological phenomenon, but perhaps not completely so. And I think, and now you have even more rationale for being worried about intensity in what has been generally regarded as only a neurological ailment. I want to add one thing just to put a punctuation mark for, for those who are reading the paper and are still wondering what exactly VO2 on kinetics are. Um, it's a it's a global marker of cardiorespiratory fitness that tends to look a little bit more closely at the peripheral muscle level. And um, and, and, and it, it, it the results we get run through a mathematical model and gives you an exponential curve. And the steeper that curve, the fitter someone is. And the less steep that curve is, the less fit someone is. And that fitness is just geared a little bit more towards looking at the peripheral muscle level. Okay, perfect. Thank you. So let's dive in to what your study was about. 
you know, the more specifically kind of the design that you had. So, so how many subjects went through the protocol? We had 17 enroll in the program and we had 12 come all the way through to the final analysis. Had patients with kind of mild to moderate Parkinson's. Um, That's right. So most were honing yar one and two. Um, most people were in their 60s and kind of a mix of male and female subjects, which is wonderful to have, mm -hmm. to have be able to recruit um, such a mix. And then the protocol itself, people went through um, training over 12 weeks. So they came in twice a week for one hour sessions, um, kind of with a very specific training intervention, which, um, you know, we can certainly talk more about, but just big picture, um, they, they received the 24 sessions, they had up to 15 weeks to complete the intervention, giving them a little wiggle room as a clinician, I keep an eye out for that. Mm -hmm. But then you, um, anyone was excluded if they didn't do at least, if they missed three in a row, right. um, which makes sense. Again, clinically, you know, we have a similar approach that if someone's not coming, it's like, well, it's like, is there something else going on? Yeah. Um, okay. And so you're saying 12 participants made it through that, that design and mm -hmm. that intervention protocol. That's okay. correct. We, we had a couple, we had a couple people change their medications partway through the program, they still made it all the way through the 24 sessions, but they changed their meds. So we had to exclude them from the analysis. Um, and then a couple other people pulled out for a variety of reasons that, that weren't generally related to the, the study, just sort of their own personal circumstances. Okay. Okay. Um, and your, the, the training protocol itself, um, I have to commend you guys for publishing and giving us access to like all the detail. I have to say, I was a little overwhelmed going through all the detail, trying to figure out exactly what you're doing for each session. Um, but no, it's nice to get the ideas, get the variety. Um, you know, I have to say this is, I know this is a gate protocol, but there were a lot of other elements as a clinician that I couldn't help but think these aren't solely gate. Like, well, I do that for balance. Um, and I think dynamic stepping and, um, and so there's, to me, there was a bit of a blend, um, but you guys were looking, you had a kind of a recipe in terms of making sure people's heart rate were up. So your goal was more than 60% of age predicted heart rate max mm -hmm. for most of the session, which you monitored um, by um, heart rate straps. So mm -hmm. you did more of a continuous monitoring. And then you also had kind of different, what you call task specificity, which um, I'd love to know a little bit more about how you guys developed the, the protocol. Cause you did a lot of, like I said, forward and backward walking, lateral stepping, kind of more specific for starting walking or getting going walking. Um, and then something called walking performance. Um, and so I was, uh, which looked at power, stability and stepping. So kind of different phases or um, kind of requirements for walking, which as clinicians, this is all, all that we are thinking about. Um, but again, there's a lot there. So just wondering one, how you came up with it and two, what you feel like, because there's so much, was there something that you felt like was um, most important in terms of either progression or kind of in terms of dosage, what aspects of this was more, more important? I, I would say that we didn't, we didn't say one thing was more important than another. It, the way that, the way that we kind of went about it was a lot of times in, um, in research in general, people try to look at, they try to isolate out mechanisms and say, let's just look at this, this pure intervention so we can study this pure mechanism and then see what it does to outcomes. And, and we try to, and, but that's not really what happens in a clinical environment. You're, you're typically trying to 
trigger multiple mechanisms at the same time to give your person the most therapeutic dose. So we looked at paradigms of motor learning. We looked at paradigms of um, sports performance practice, the sequencing that they use for that. We looked at uh, intensity paradigms for, for cardiorespiratory fitness training. And we tried to blend all of them together into sort of this package of, of exercises that, that just kind of shoots the middle of all these different concepts so that you can give someone sort of a composite dose of something that we thought would be beneficial for them. Did That's you guys very, try these exercises? Broad. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We had a weekly sessions uh, where we'd be in the lab trying them on each other. And it was, it was pretty, <laughs> pretty fun, I got to say. So and actually, uh, I, I actually did the program as yeah. part of training all of the, the whole research team. Um, it's pretty intense. I can tell you that. Um, and, um, you know, you find out that maybe your one-legged stance on one leg isn't quite what you thought it was. So it was quite informative. I just want to throw out that that this was not a, a quick process to put together the design and that it was actually preceded by a somewhat similar program um, that we did for a couple of years in spinal incomplete spinal cord injury. But what I really want to emphasize about the research process, process, and Andrew alluded to it, is weeks and weeks of conversations with the doctoral students, and many taking place when I wasn't there, um, to what does the literature say? What if we, what if we actually paid attention to the literature and tried to build, try to pull out what we think are the best, um, best ideas? In the literature all in one fell swoop because andrew hit it on the head as a clinician you've got 30 minutes hopefully minimum of 30 minutes sometimes 45 occasionally you might have 60 and you've got a whole long list of of, of goals that you've got to hit um and there just isn't time to do it in the research style of, okay, this little thing we're gonna work for 15 minutes on your muscles and this little thing will work for you know 20 minutes on your balance. You gotta, to use the expression, get it all in one sock and get it, get it done. So just for as an example, let's just go over maybe one of the um, lateral. So you guys characterized kind of lateral rotational and forward and back. So lateral was like some sidestepping where you focused on push off. So, you know, I mean, if you go back to even animal studies, when, you know, when they, when they train, when they train mice to walk backwards, they, they get much better at, at walking forwards and, and these locomotors circuitries, a lot of times they're overlapping. So the notion that in order, I mean, you know, we looked at our, our primary outcome was, you know, we, we want to make, give people better walking endurance, but walking endurance doesn't always happen in a straight line on a concrete floor, you know? And, and, and so, so as much as it's important to train people uh, in multiple directions so that they can function in daily life and step over things and move side to side and dodge traffic, you know, and, and not, what am I saying? Not dodging traffic, but um, it, it's, it also makes sense from a from a mechanistic perspective that in order to get someone better at walking forwards, you you would want to train multiple directions. Uh, so that's that was the rationale for that. And in terms of power and stability and stepping, I mean, they're all prerequisites to each other. You 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 can't have power without stability, and 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 you have to take the next step. And so each of these sort of subcomponents of of walking are all essential 
for one another. And I think from a, when we are working with patients in the clinic uh, with Parkinson's disease, you know, we're working on amplitude, we're working on speed, um, and we are working on, you know, these biomechanical factors that you guys have been talking about or alluding to. Um, and I, and so I would say your protocol is like, it kind of hits these boxes, you know, this kind of, um, variable training protocol that kind of addresses what we know are the impairments for people living with Parkinson's, right? They don't, they don't feel big. They, they move small and it's hard for them to move big because of both the neurological um, deficits that are impacting their ability to access that movement. Um, and so did you guys think about kind of those principles of training in Parkinson's when you were developing this? It's important to point out. So, so if we look at the, the three major um, principles of adaptation, uh, we had test specificity down. I think as clinicians, we're pretty good at progressive overload, although we probably um, maybe underplay volume as a, as, a, as a component of progressive overload. And practice variability from some of the literature that Andrew has already mentioned really says you got to approach it from multiple angles. And practically speaking, there was one uh, going back to our spinal cord research, we were shocked. We had some patients who have been treated at some of the best facilities in the United States. And we were shocked to find out that they, when we were having them do things like walk backwards and sideways, that that had never been trained at all. And I think that that was a surprise to us when, as Andrew pointed out, we move in all directions. Um, and and it's, a, it's a critical means for introducing variability. And Katie, you're so right. I mean, it's not only initiating, it's terminating, it's changing the speed, it's anticipation of a change of speed. All of these things are so difficult for, for people with PD. So, so giving them the experience, I guess that's the other the other intellectual thread here. We, we're, we were very much influenced by dynamical systems theory and notions of self-organization. So one of the motivators here is how many experiences can we load into a training session that will allow each individual to find their their way through all this? and pull it all together. And, and so it becomes much more of a, how can I set up um, an, a, a sort of therapeutic environment and expose you to a variety of situations and let your brain figure this out, okay, with him and, and you know, use the information from muscles, use your sensation, use your perception, okay, and, and get it all together because honestly, we don't have a really good handle of what's happening inside that patient's head, but we're very much convinced that if we can somehow expose them, um, somehow, amazingly, they do figure it out because they get better, don't they? So um, I think that was a, a large motivating factor: is let's set up the play, let's set up the jungle gym, let's set up the playground, and say, go to it, see what happens. So how did people progress through the, uh, 
protocol? Did everyone make it through all 24 sessions? Because I think it looked to me that every session was a bit different. Or did, did some people have to somehow master certain um, movements or sessions before you moved on? No, they just went all the way through. Um, it wasn't depend. You didn't have to get through step one to go to through step two. One thing I do want to touch on about what Dr. Guccione was saying, and you said earlier, this it, 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 there is a lot of emphasis in the Parkinson's literature on movement amplitude. And I have to say that, in all honesty, that was not something that we centrally focused on, or in, in fact, really focused on at all. Um, because the reason why, and the reason for that was that movement amplitude is sort of the final result of how a movement looks. And, and, and we did not put any emphasis on what their walking had to look like. We didn't tell them, we, we want you to walk in this way. We, you really need to get that arm swinging. We instead, we just gave them task goals, like walk quickly around that cone and, and walk quickly around that cone. And when you're, when you're there, I want you to push off hard. And if someone ended up doing that with a large amplitude, great, that's how they self-organized. But if they didn't end up doing it in the way with that large amplitude, then we took that. And we didn't, we didn't say that this, it had to have that certain look. So, so that was just a, I think that was something that maybe was a little different with what we did. And then back to what you were saying about people moving through, it was a, it was a pre-scripted protocol and it, it had all of the um, progressive overload built in. If you look carefully at the protocol, you'll see that uh, you know, there's slightly less rest breaks or, or slightly more things added in the rest breaks as the protocol goes on. Um, activities that are perhaps a little bit more speed based and and with a little bit more load towards the end of the protocol. So it was all baked in from the beginning. Okay. So it sounds like, you know, you set up the environment, you, gave, you were instructional in terms of the course um, or the activity that you wanted them to do, um, but you weren't specific on different queuing strategies um, let's say someone had kind of more of a shuffled gait. It's like, you didn't, you didn't necessarily work on improving or reducing kind of a shuffled gait in between, let's say the two cones, it was just a matter of get to the cone. And then like what you were saying, push off when you're returning back. That's exactly right. I, okay. I, I think, you know, if we saw that as a result of the training, someone moved away from that shuffle gait, that we, that's probably a good outcome. But it wasn't the wasn't the focus. The focus was more of the basic, foundational prerequisites of successful walking, which is having good balance on one leg at a time, being able to stabilize that, being able to drive through the floor and generate propulsion, and being somewhat agile with the lead leg and stepping and maintaining balance through all that. And and so that was we really didn't deviate from those core goals. And whatever the look ended up being, that was the look that was appropriate for that person. And, and their own system knows how to self-organize better than we know how to mandate. And in terms of measuring success with the program, you guys also used as your primary outcomes um, walking economy, which you measured by the 10-minute walk test, um, which most of our viewers are going to be familiar with. We actually, I think most people would wonder why you didn't use the six-minute, because I think clinically that's um, where most, most clinicians use. And then you also had perceived fatigability, which was um, a self-report rating scale, like a seven-point rating scale. Mm -hmm. um, so just to back up, so how did you guys select the 10-minute walking test to measure the walking economy? There were two main reasons for that. Um, the first one was that that seven-point perceived fatigability scale that you're talking about was developed and validated um, 
concurrently with the 10 minute walk test by a researcher named uh, Jack Schnell or John Schnell, I believe. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah. So, 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 you know, we, we had to go with something that had been, it's hard to use a six minute walk test with a, they went together. Um, and then another reason was because the 10 minute walk test enabled us to get enough gas exchange data to look at the first six minutes for the VO2 on kinetics, and then also have um, a good chunk of data at the end to measure walking economy over a long period of time. So it would have been more difficult to measure walking economy with just the six minutes, because honestly, you, you have in order to measure walking economy, you have to get to a steady state of oxygen uptake. And some people don't really get there until four minutes, five minutes, actually. So you, you may have been ended up ending up having a very small amount of data for your walking economy measurements. That's why we chose 10. Okay. And maybe I'm, com I'm confusing the terminology. So, and I think I did. So your walking economy is the um, kind of the oxygen uptake over the remaining like four to 10 minutes of the 10 minute walk test, but the walking endurance was measured by total distance on the 10 minute walk test. That's right. Yeah. That's so right. just to and go back and correct myself. That's right. And the exact okay. time it was the, it was the last, um, it was minutes four to 10 of the 10 minute walk test, because when we looked at the data, we had confirmed that most people had reached a steady state by four minutes. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so as a clinician, so when I look at your total distances, like from the pretest, um, on average, people walked about 885 meters. Um, I always convert that if someone walks continuously, I just try to get an average gate speed and that's 1.4 meters per second. And at range in your sample, you're around 1.2 to 1.7 meters per second. I mean, those are very fast speeds. And I think for a lot of us in the clinic, most of our patients on a six minute walk test, at least for me are in the range of like 0.8 to 1.1. Um, you know, it's, it's just from, from our referrals, this is only speaking to my clinic. I'm in an outpatient neurological clinic. Um, and hospital based just outside of Chicago. So, um, you know, you had people that a baseline could walk generally fast, um, who probably had a little bit more um, capacity than maybe other patients that we kind of typically see. Um, but what did you guys see in terms of change? Because I'm not very familiar with the Cohen's um, statistical analysis, but you had kind of what we called a medium effect in terms of change from change in distance from pre to post test. Mm -hmm. I believe we had um, somewhere around 85 meters of change. So if you want to just divide that into six minute walk test terms, that could mm -hmm. be around 55 uh, meters of change. And I think part of the reason why we may have had people who are slightly more high functioning coming in is, is that's just the nature of who, who seeks out a pretty rigorous training protocol in a university setting in the first place, you know, uh, healthcare seeking individuals. I think that's just the type of person. But if anything, it actually uh, it adds sort of a punch to our results because it, everyone knows it's it's a lot of times more difficult to, or maybe not, maybe not everyone agrees with this, but I think some people would say it's more difficult to impact positive change in someone who's already in pretty good shape. Yeah. And so that was my thought. I was like, well, is there a change? So what does it mean when it says it's a medium effect? How should I interpret that as a clinician? The fact is, it's a significant. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely, statistically significant. And if you want, if someone wants to uh, verify that for themselves, you can look at the confidence interval. And if the if the ninety five percent confidence interval doesn't include zero, then it's statistically significant. 
I would just throw, for those who are wondering what an effect size is, it's, it's kind of gives you an idea of the, what the bang for the buck is. Yeah. Um, and the, the small, medium and large effects are, are sort of preset um, by statistical theory coming from Dr. Cohen, um, who, who sort of came up with this. And there are some other variations. But it's one of the things to look at is a lot of the things we do in rehab have an effect. And 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 a lot of statistical significance is based upon sample size. Um, and I wouldn't say that effect size isn't related to sample size, because in part it is. But it's a way of saying, well, it, was that effect worth it? So, for example, if you have an effect size of 0.2, it means you did something. But like, how much did you how much effort, how many resources did you use for a small effect? Most things, you know, a, 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 what I would call a penicillin level effect would be like a 0.8. If you can get into a 0 0.4, 0 0.5, 0.6, that suggests that that rehabilitation effect is 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 substantial enough. Okay, and if you get what's less than a 0.2, which is a trivial or sometimes called negligible effect, it means there's not a whole lot of, out of gain to be made here, even though, yes, there was a difference, but it wasn't a difference that's that's amounting to much. That's, that's great. That's that's very understandable. And I think for your main outcomes, so total distance. Um, and then this, what the phase two of your the VO2, um, you had this medium effect. So your mm -hmm. primary outcomes, um, you know, did show improvements for both of those, but fatigability did not. One, one thing I do want to mention about, um, there's a, there's, there's, there is a, there's a difference between perceived fatigability and, and fatigue. Fatigue is a, a questionnaire you give someone typically to, to, to recall to, and they, and they tell you how tired they were in the last couple of weeks. And, and that's that's a good measure in and of itself. It gives you the information you want. But what it doesn't do is it doesn't contextualize what they were doing. So um, a fatigue measurement is, is, I mean, there's this paradox in literature. A lot of times as people get older, their fatigue scores don't change. They don't, they don't get worse at all, even though we would all imagine that an 80-year-old would be in much less shape than a 50-year-old. And, and the reason why is because physical activity and what you're doing is not concurrently measured. So in our study, perceived fatigability was uh, something we asked them directly after the test, after the 10-minute walk test, you know, how much more tired are you that from the beginning of the test? And they would tell us. And then so, so the fact that perceived fatigability did not change from pre to post in our intervention, but walking distance did increase, tells you that they were able to do more activity with the same mm -hmm. level of perceived fatigability, which means they're more resilient in the face of physical activity. Yeah, their perception of fatigue is, like you're saying, is the same. They don't feel like it was any more tiring for them. Mm -hmm. Were they surprised? I don't know if you guys shared the results, but were they surprised when you told them if you were able to tell them that they went further? I don't think a lot of people were very surprised. I think uh, I think a lot of the people they they knew that they were doing better. I actually we had one person in our study who um, was uh, went on a long hiking trip at the conclusion of the study, and he reached 
the person reached back out to us at the at the end of the study, and and he said that he said that he had never felt more engaged with the ground, and had never felt more balanced in the last twenty years since he's had Parkinson's disease. He was on he was kind of rock scrambling and and wasn't even having to use poles, and it was a real thing for him. So I think a lot of people knew they were getting better. Okay, so this has been so interesting, and I can't help but wonder future directions of this work. You know, we still have. There's two more papers that come out of to come out of the study. They're both almost finished, and one actually looks to how people were accomplishing turns, and the other one, all from the same study, is how um, people uh, we. Uh, deal with ground reaction force because we, as you noticed previously, we spent a lot of time pushing off. And um, I will just say there's a teaser that some of our hypotheses were not confirmed as to what happened, but some very interesting data, one that supports self-organization and the idiosyncratic nature of how people make turns and also, we did notice that people um, didn't necessarily um, have a posterior ground reaction force that was greater, but they could, in fact, initiate, um, there was a faster rate of rise to their muscle contractions, uh, which we did not expect. And I think it says something, again, about clinicians always thinking, what's the endpoint of what we're doing? Early on, Katie, you said, well, there are balance exercises and gait exercises. And over time, I've come to say, hmm, maybe they're not as different and compartmentalized as we think in terms of what we're doing. You know, is practicing stepping, practicing stepping, or is it actually practicing one-legged stance? I think the answer is yes. Excellent point. <laughs> Thank you guys both so much for being here. This has been really enlightening. I feel like we got a little bit of everything today. I feel like I got my DPT education like all wrapped up a little from statistics and biomechanics and like you guys are my CIs all at once. Um, but what we love to do is try to understand what you do for fun uh, when you're not trying to get people with Parkinson's to be more efficient. On a weekend, you can typically find me looking up a new trail to hike and uh out there in the woods that's that's typically where i am and then during the week i i'm just typically working and uh reading in my free time awesome dr g's well um i would say uh gardening is important to me um i like to do that in the summer um i am the weekend griller um, love to spend time at the barbecue. Um, I have two granddaughters, uh, seven and four. So I guess I would include them in my recreation time. Um, and I, I like to read and that has been one of the real joys of retirement. Um, the number of things that you can read when you don't have to read everything else. <laughs> it's coming across your desk. Well, thank you again. Thank you for studying this, putting this paper out. I think as a clinician, it's just really great to have this knowledge protocol, just more information really to kind of help guide our treatment um, so that we can help patients kind of living with Parkinson's. Our pleasure. Thank, thanks for so much for having thank us on. You. This was fun. Thanks for joining us. Special thanks to our guests today. 
Dr. Andrew Guccione and Dr. Andrew Pechstein. This podcast is produced by the ANPT Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group. Subscribe to our newsletter on the ANPT website, neuropt.org, or check us out on Facebook. This podcast was edited and produced by the DDSIG podcast team, which includes Karen Padgett, Sarah Zoller, Chris Burke, Carly Havard, Jeffrey Schmidt, Ken Vanacco, and I'm Katie McGraw. Thanks to Jimmy McKay for providing music. We do bloopers. I'm just here along for the ride. I don't want to look like a Bond villain or something, but I'll zip this all the way up so that doesn't happen. And I'll just describe my 45 years as a PT, and that'll take up the entire podcast, so we're going with it. <laughs> Congratulations. Oh, I have to scratch out everything. Okay, perfect. It's like, we just did physical therapy. Just, we just right. PT, Standard. Right? Traditional Standard. physical therapy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. Well, maybe I'll run into you in San Diego. Great. Yeah, that would be awesome. 15, 16, 17, 18,000 other people. I'm sure we'll see each other. (laughs) It has to be really good for me to be dressed and ready at 8 (laughs) a.m. This was great. This was really fun. Thanks, guys. That was painless.